Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I am Ryan Daly. And we're almost there, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> Just gotta get through this. <laughs> we gotta get through this. Uh, this episode, we discuss the penultimate issue of Max Allen Collins' run on Batman with issue number 411 and the final chapter of Batman Year Two in Detective Comics number 578. We're inching ever closer to the return of Jim Aparo to the character and the permanent residence of Norm Brayfogel for quite some time. So we're, we're getting there, folks. We're getting there. <laughs> Just, just breathe slowly. It's just like, yep, yep. Just kind of, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this. We'll do this together. Just slow and steady steps forward. It's like when you're a kid. It's like, okay, you gotta go get a shot. But afterwards, we're gonna get ice cream. There okay. You go. There you go. It's all gonna be good. Yeah. Uh, before we jump into the issues in question, uh, like always, let's take a look at what else was on the comic shelves and racks at this time. Cover dated September of 1987. So, what jumps out at you, Ryan? From DC, since we're talking about Batman, uh, looking at the DC side of things first, uh, the second issue of Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters by Mike Grell. Um, pretty uh, pretty significant issue in the life of uh, Black Canary, who I have some familiarity with. Um, mm mm-hmm. The closest comparison that a lot of people draw is what happened to Barbara Gordon in Batman the Killing Joke happened to Dinah Lance in uh, this one, although it's not as permanent and it's not as long-lasting. But uh, yeah, this is uh, something really awful happens to her to advance Ollie's story, and it's uh, not cool. But yeah. yeah, it's interesting to see. It doesn't seem like that's come under the amount of scrutiny that the Killing Joke has. No, uh, I, I mean, I think, well, Batman and Batgirl are a whole lot more popular. Um, what happens to Dinah is more ambiguous. I mean, she's clearly physically tortured. The amount that it is sexual in nature is uh, debatable, or, or certainly not overt, not obvious. But it's also something that she got to deal with and eventually overcome. Um, and it also wasn't, I mean, like I said, like it didn't, she wasn't paralyzed. It didn't end her career as Black Canary the way The Killing Joke ended Barbara's career as Batgirl for decades. Right. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't as significant. It wasn't as damaging to the character. But it was, yeah, it was not cool if you like Black Canary. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, as like you said, just to kind of advance Green Arrow's story, and in his book, not Black and Arrow's story. Yeah, that's true. Uh, on the uh, maybe equally as controversial, or perhaps even more so, but definitely sillier side of things, we have Action Comics number 592, which is the infamous Superman and Bart to make a porno issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and Michael Bailey just threw his headphones down and, and went storming off. Uh yeah, there's debate on whether or not they actually made it porno. I kind of tend to think they at least made a softcore film because of the way Mr. Miracle reacts in this in this comic book. I've reread it since the advent of the internet and all the controversies, and it sure does seem like they did more than, yeah. It, it, it definitely seems like something went on that they both can be... Uh, embarrassed about um so yeah really questionable content for a <laughs> newsstand code approved comic by john byrne there <laughs> yeah um the only thing i can say is you know if i lived in the dc universe i would have bought the pirate copy of that video <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, also at DC, uh, Secret Origins issue 18. This featured the uh, Golden Age Green Lantern Alan Scott, as well as the Creeper. Um, and noticeable about the the origin of Alan Scott in that issue, the art was done by George Freeman, who we talked about recently on the Batman Annual number 11, because he did the Clayface story in that one, too. Mm-hmm. I really like his stuff, and he didn't do enough stuff for DC. You know, he did that. He did the autobiography of Bruce Wayne with Joe Staten and, uh, and Brave and the Bold. And, uh, yeah, he didn't do, didn't do enough at DC because I really liked the stuff. That was a good issue of, yeah. of Secret Origins. You can too. hear yeah. that on the Secret Origins podcast. I talked about Alan Scott with uh, Michael Bailey, who you just mentioned, uh, and oh. the Creeper story I talked about with our buddy Dr. Ange. Who, was that his first podcast appearance? No, he did Power Girl. Never mind. He did Power Girl, too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, well, Dr. Ange will come up later in this episode, too, yeah. by the way. Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 21 features mm-hmm. the rather rushed wedding of Spider-Man and Mary Jane, and uh, there's still a lot of debate about that. Uh, I personally think it was kind of one of those things they wanted to synergize things between the comic strip, which had naturally moved them toward marriage, I was reading the Spider-Man comics at the time, missed a couple of issues, and bam, all of a sudden he's proposing to Mary Jane. I'm like, where did this come from? What happened? You know, so uh, <laughs> but this was Jim Shooter uh, toward the end of his editorial run, you know, dictating how things were going to go. And uh, so, yeah, they got married. And uh, I think some good stuff came out of them being married. I unfortunately, the whole Mephisto thing <laughs> really put a. <laughs> I, don't I, I, I don't know of any negative consequences or fallout of their marriage. I mean, if, like <laughs> me, you stopped reading Spider-Man in 2005, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's true. Yeah, I, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about either, you know. <laughs> so, But, yeah, obviously still still quite a bit of a debate going on about that as well. So there's a lot of important books coming out, including yeah. Justice League number 5, which features the famous one punch. Yeah, I'm waiting for the shag sound effect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which you can hear about, of course, on uh, Justice League International Bwahaha podcast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Were you on that episode? I was on that episode, yes. <laughs> I, you're right. I was the lucky SOB that got to talk about probably the most famous issue of that entire series. So, yay me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just a few other like really quick hits going around. Um, two others from DC. Suicide Squad, issue five. Um, this is the start of when the, the team goes over to Russia to capture a defector and leads to, you know, shenanigans as a Suicide Squad is want to do. I really like this issue. Um, I started reading Suicide Squad just a couple of years ago when I was doing the Secret Origins podcast and kept reading it, and I've read about the first two and a half years of the of the series now. Um, I need to get back to it and eventually like finish out that whole run. But issue five, like this storyline, this is where I think the book really sort of found its identity for sure. Um, there was good stuff in the first couple of issues, but I felt like this storyline, I was like, okay, I'm on the book's wavelength now. I'm getting what, you know, Ostrander and company, they're doing with this, and I, I like it. So I really like that issue. Uh, Wonder Woman issue 8, this was the first issue after her really long, you know, for the time period, her origin and her first adventure in the new book took seven issues. And then issue 8 is kind of like the first one that deals with, you know, sort of a passage of time as we get different characters telling the story of, like, you know, what's going on in her life and sort of advancing and kind of playing catch-up a little bit. 
And then two over at Marvel, Iron Man issue 222. I just wanted to mention this one because it was like the first back issue of Iron Man that I ever got, just because I really loved the cover. It's Iron Man in his uh, silver centurion armor, which I always really liked, and he's lifting up like a car or a truck or something on the cover. It's like fire is kind of raining down. Uh, This one took place either in the middle of or right before the Armor Wars storyline, which Mm. was just a really good uh, high point for the character. Um, David Michelini writing, uh, I think M.D. Bright is the penciler around at this point. And just, I I like that issue. I always loved that cover. I I was reading a couple of Iron Man books like around that would have been out like in the early 90s. But when I saw this issue back then, I was like, oh, I got to get that one. Mm -hmm, That's Uh, good cover. And then West Coast Avengers 24 wrapped up a major storyline that was like eight issues long. And they like the way they had done this thing like over the course of eight issues is there was like all these different time travel episodes. And every time they added a new chapter to the series, like another issue came out, they split the timeline into that many more like different divergent paths. So by the oh, time wow. you got to like the seventh issue in the story arc, you have seven different timelines with characters doing stuff and kind of jumping back and forth and, and getting it. It was like really crazy, but really well done. And so I just, I like that issue and I read that for the first time uh, not too long ago, a couple of months ago. It was a fun month for comics. Yeah, uh, just a few more I'd point out. And uh, Legion of Superheroes number 38, Superboy sacrifices himself to save the Pocket Universe and his teammates. And that is the death of the Pocket Universe Superboy, which is essentially the Silver Age Superboy. Over at Marvel, uh, Captain America number 333 continues the Steve Rogers, you know, the storyline where Steve Rogers is forced to quit as Cap. Uh, It says, who will be the next Cap on the cover and uh, one of the people we see is the late Stan Lee, uh, which I think is funny. They put a lot of different faces on the cover of that comic. <laughs> and uh, we get the answer inside, which is actually John Walker, a.k.a. the Super Patriot. And we will soon find out over the course of the next, what is it, like year, that that wasn't a real good choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, I would almost say they kind of did Nightfall before Nightfall. Oh, yeah. There are a yeah. lot of parallels in that storyline. Definitely. I think... I mean, I, I, I mean, I, that's one thing about Nightfall that that I've always felt like it's like, yeah, Marvel already did this. Mark Grunewald did this, you know, pretty much by himself without three or four other writers back in, <laughs> back you know, five years before, you know. So yeah, that's definitely definite parallels there. Uh, the final issue, number seventeen of Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider Ham, is released. And unfortunately, the character is never heard from again. So, <laughs> certainly not in one of the best damn movies of 2018. No, not at all. I, I didn't see him in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I loved it. It's like that's all, folks. It's like, can you yeah. say that legally? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> what a great movie. Yeah, oh, just just great. Yeah, I mean, we got a lot. We got a, some real. The end of the year gave us a lot of comic comic love at the movie theater. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teen Titan Spotlight number 14 features Nightwing's first solo story, the first time that Nightwing is plastered on the, the title of a comic book with his big logo there. And uh, it explores the uh, strained relationship with Batman as he tries to save his mentor from some vengeful mobsters who have c- captured him. Uh, we should actually talk about this one at some point. I don't know where it fits in, but that's a really good that's a really good issue and maybe it it kind of tie i guess it kind of works in with an issue we're going to have to talk about if batman down the road maybe we should drop that in there somewhere or something i don't know we'll have to talk about it off mic sometime but yeah i am my memory is batman gets captured 
Dick has to like go like goes in as Nightwing and saves him. You know, Dick is like, "Hey, you actually needed help," and and Batman was like, "Well, you know, you did it. You know, with the training that I gave you and everything like that." And it, I just kind of got the feeling of Batman was like, "I kind of saved myself." I was like, "Damn it, Batman! Just shut up and be grateful." <laughs> yeah, and you get just like one little smile of Batman as he as he <laughs> yeah. walks away. It's like, did you have to be a total prick to him? You know, it's like, come on, you know. But but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, we got a lot to talk about with the Batman Nightwing relationship in the mm-hmm. in the years to come in, in this, on this podcast. So, because uh, obviously the uh, retcons that they've done have <laughs> shaken the foundation of that relationship a lot. So, yep. uh, and before we close out, we have to mention, of course, we get issue number one of Wild Dog. <laughs> 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 we can laugh all we want, but the guy made it to a TV series. He so. did. He did indeed. <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick promo break, and we come back. We'll talk about Batman number four eleven. Don't go away. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. Batman 411 is cover dated September 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World, it went on sale June 9th that year. The book still cost only 75 cents. The cover shows Two-Face crouching down, firing a gun at the dynamic duo. The bullet sails between Batman and Robin, who lunge for Two-Face in front of a giant purple orb that will later be revealed to be a giant roulette ball that casts exaggerated reflections of the characters. Chris? Yeah, it's not a bad cover, but my question is, who drew this thing? (laughs) Well, Mike's Amazing doesn't list a cover credit. According to the DC database, the cover may have been drawn by Steve Geiger, who did the last issue's cover, too, or possibly Dick Giordano, or possibly some combination of the two, knowing Dick Giordano. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, Grand Comic Database says it's Giordano, but it's got a question mark with his name by pencils and inks. And so, so this is, it's so weird to think a comic, I know this comic's 31 years old at this point, but a comic this modern, nobody knows who drew the cover exactly. It's so weird <laughs> to me. It's like, wow, it looks very Dick Giordano. It does. Yeah. I mean, it could just be him or it could be him draw, redrawing somebody or heavily inking somebody. So, but it's not a bad cover. I mean, it, you know, I, I think it, it is kind of odd. You really don't know what the ball's about because there's no background information to show they're on a roulette table right uh that's kind of weird i mean maybe if it wasn't quite so close in on the characters they could have added some detail to show you what they were fighting on you know but mm-hmm. yeah, it's not it's not bad it's 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 well done but it's just kind of average you know yeah it's it's fine i mean i kind of i like the idea like not knowing what the ball is or what that's about I like what it does in this cover is that because Two-Face is not quite in profile, but we're definitely looking at his clean side. We're looking at the right side of his face more. 
and we only get a tiny little sliver of the green scarred face. But his reflection, which is just above him, shows the nasty scarred face of him. So I like what the reflection is actually doing in showing us more of the, the scarred personage of, of Two-Face in this picture. So I kind of like that. Other than that, it's, I mean, Robin's got his back to us, but we see his face in the in the mirror, but it's not nearly as cool or dynamic. It's an interesting looking cover. I mean, I, I picked this up as a kid, so it's, I, I guess it did its job. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let us get into the story then. Second Chance is written by Max Allen Collins, penciled by Dave Cockrum again, and this is the first time we have had a repeat artist on a Collins-written issue of this book. Can you believe that? <laughs> This is like seven Max Allen Collins stories, and this is the sixth artist. Uh, Don Heck inked the book, Augustin Moss lettered it, Adrian Roy colored it, and Denny O'Neill edited the thing. Two-Face and a fresh pair of twin henchmen pull off a daring daylight robbery of the Second National Bank of Gotham, a heist that has only been done once before, so now it has been done twice, because that's Two-Face's thing, get it? Across town, Bruce Wayne is being praised for raising funds for Gotham General Hospital's free clinics. For some reason, Commissioner Gordon is there, and Bruce overhears an officer tell Gordon about Two-Face's latest robbery. A short time later, Batman pays a rare daytime visit to Gordon's office to discuss Two-Face's current scheme. Batman returns to the Batcave, where Alfred tells him that Jason Todd hasn't gotten out of bed all day. When Bruce tells the boy he's going out on patrol to look for Two-Face, a disgruntled, somewhat petulant Jason dons his Robin costume and joins his mentor. While on patrol, Robin questions Two-Face's robbery of the Lucky Dollar Casino from last issue. There doesn't seem to be a connection to the number two, like every other job Two-Face pulls. The next night, Batman accurately predicts that Two-Face will try to rob the box office of one of Gotham's two baseball stadiums, as the Gotham Mammoths play the Metropolis Twins. Two-Face makes his move during the second inning when the batter has two strikes, two balls, and two men on base. So that's lucky that that series of events occurred. (laughs) Batman takes Two-Face down and tells Robin to stand guard while the detective ties up Two-Face's twin thugs. But when Robin is left alone with Two-Face, he tries to strangle the man, calling him a murderer. Two-Face hits Robin and throws him aside, then runs out into the stadium and onto the playing field. Batman chases him, but Two-Face takes the baseball bat and, using the batter himself as interference, strikes Batman with the bat. Then Two-Face runs the bases and slides into second. Commissioner Gordon runs onto the field, gun drawn, but he fails to catch up with Two-Face as he runs out into center field, climbs a rope ladder into the stands, and escapes into a getaway car. Yes, that actually happened, that thing I just described. (laughs) Batman and Robin don't talk in the car ride home. Why would you want to say anything after you just experienced that? But when they get back to the cave, Batman demands to know why Jason lost his cool and let Two-Face escape. Jason blows up and tells Batman that he read in the computer files that Two-Face killed his father, Willis Todd. That Batman had known about it but didn't tell him. Batman says he kept the truth from Jason to protect him, that he was afraid the boy's rage would overcome him and he'd make a mistake in the field. You know, which is exactly what happened. Batman is willing to give the boy a second chance if he can keep a cool head. Robin does more than that. He actually predicts that Two-Face will hit the Lucky Dollar Casino a second time. That's the only way it plays into his obsession with the number two. 
Two-Face tries to escape by running onto a giant roulette wheel. The wheel spins, causing Two-Face to become so dizzy that he surrenders, but a giant ball threatens to crush him. At the last second, Robin spins out onto the wheel and kicks the ball aside, saving the life of the man who may have killed his father. And that was Second Chance. What did you think, buddy? Ah... Yeah, it's it's more of the same. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's like we've said before, it's oddly kind of juvenile and retro in some places, but it's unironically retro. <laughs> so therefore, it seems vastly out of date, especially after coming off Frank Miller and Dave Mazzuchelli, as we've said right. in this title, you know, and then the artistic stylings of Alan Davis and Todd McFarlane on Detective. So it's not it's not bad, but it's just. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, I I don't want to say that my opinion on Collins's work has softened, or that I've just become kind of dead to the same kind of criticism. If anything, I feel like I've been listening to the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast hosted by um, our friends Sean Ross and Greg Arujo, and they've mm-hmm. kind of been going through the same thing with Jim Shooter's work on that story, and I think. Greg has just sort of devolved in this puddle of insanity where he's he's more fascinated by how badly Jim Shooter is writing that book um, yeah. than critical anymore. And I'm kind yeah. of at that same point where I'm just like, the decisions, I'm just so stupefied by the decision making in the storytelling because you're right when you say juvenile. And when I look at this, like, there are elements of this story, like the whole baseball game and Two-Face's wild escape. And like, if you're reading that as an adult, adult who just a few months earlier read Batman Year One, you're like, this is farcically stupid. But, and something else that I've been reading a lot, like, if this was in a little golden book or one of those, like, five-minute Batman stories that I would get for my kid, it would be perfectly fine. It's Mm -hmm. silly and kind of lighthearted, and it would be entertaining for a little kid to read this. So, who is the audience who is Collins writing this story for? Because a lot of it, most of it, reads like he's writing for really little kids. Mm-hmm. But then you also have the fact that Robin is dealing with the fact that this guy murdered his dad. And Batman has been keeping that secret from him. Like, these are heavier themes. Mm-hmm. And we have to sort of touch upon, and we'll come back to this later, like this was handled much better in the Robin's Reckoning storyline of Batman the Animated Series. But it's just kind of like... I, I, I don't know, and again, I like we. this is another thing where we just have to keep coming back to Denny O'Neill. What were you thinking while you were the editor of this thing? Like, who is this for? What is your goal with this series? Are you just treading water? Did you think you weren't going to stay on the book for the next decade like you did, or what? But it's really weird, this discrepancy of how juvenile and... and dumb, kind of silly this can read, while still dealing with really serious topics and things like that that should be more mature in line with the groundbreaking miniseries that just came before this. I, I don't, I'm, I'm mystified. Yeah, I, I, think, I think in hindsight, you know, just by the way we covered it, of course we would have probably covered it anyway, but because, you know, Denny made that decision to run Batman Year One in the Batman title, which was a first. You know, I mean, nobody had ever, mm-hmm. you know, really. I mean, yeah, there had been multi-part storylines and even some of the Batman books before, but never where one where it like looked like a separate comic book. You know, it looked like a separate miniseries with its own trade dress and its own look and its own, you know, distinct identity. But by doing that and then going to this, I mean, 
I don't Collins was set up to fail in a lot of ways, really. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to defend the guy, but I mean, there was just no way he could, you know, his his approach to Batman was so vastly different. And, and again, like you said, that falls under O'Neill. He should have got these guys in a room and said, OK, this is how Batman is going to be. You know, this is. This is the type of Batman story you need to be writing. This is the type of the character, the way the character is going to be written moving forward. And we got none of that here, you know, and it's, it is right. It does remind me of a, uh, a book that something you'd find at like a scholastic book fair or yes. something you know? yeah. in the, in the artwork as well, because yes. Dave Cockrum is, where is Dave Cockrum in this book? This looks like it was completely drawn by Don Heck. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I was, I was going to say like the, the art feels much, much more suited for a young reader too. Like the, I can see some of these panels in a scholastic type of thing or like a book on tape or something like that. that you just kind of, it's weird. And like the first three pages there's eight panels total in the first three pages, and this isn't a decompressed era of storytelling. And these aren't, like, dynamic pages or anything. It's just a robbery. It's just Two-Face robbing this people and getting in a getaway car, and they're just kind of kind of casually having this conversation. Like, the way it's spread out, it's like it's for little kids because they need bigger pages and more space. Yeah, and I was never a huge Don Heck fan, and as a kid, I, I didn't like his stuff at all, really, but... And, and, and I don't – I'm treading lightly here because I don't want to make myself sound like some racist or something. But back when I was a kid, I thought he made everyone look comic stereotype Asian. Hmm. I, I just – I mean that's what I thought. I mean I just thought the way he drew eyes and teeth looked like bad Asian stereotypes in comic books. And he made everybody look that way. <laughs> that, that's the way I felt when I was a kid. I don't know why and I still got that in the back of my head. And I can kind of see why I thought that in a couple places here. And he's inking over top of Cockrum. Now, I have since seen his early Marvel work. And in fact, I was actually watching it. I didn't know it at the time, but I was watching it on the old Marvel superheroes cartoons, the 60s yep. one, yep. Iron Man and the Avengers. And uh, when they do a Captain America story that was had the Avengers in it. And uh, I like that stuff. I think he's really nice. But And I've seen his pencil work like when he was doing Justice League. And I thought... Maybe nobody, including himself, ever really inked him quite right. You know, it was kind of another one of those cases. But it's it's okay, but it's definitely it's serviceable. It's not bad. It's the storytelling is competent, but it's just very safe, and it is very much the type of artwork uh, that DC would use, like you said, on a uh, uh, book on tape set, or uh, you know, I think Don Heck drew a. Uh, DC superheroes, some kind of health thing that was a giveaway at like drugstores a few yeah, years from yeah. here. They yeah, show Batman, all these kids standing around Batman and Wonder Woman and Superman, and and that's what this artwork looks like. I mean, it, it's a huge. I know, I know, we're a few issues away from Dave Mazzucchelli, but my gosh, this is a big departure from that type of art. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i i just gotta think just little little things that jump out at me one how observant are the bank tellers and ticket booth people in gotham city i mean a guy in a two-tone suit with a scarred up green face walks up and until he's right on top of him they don't notice it you know i know he's got a hat on but come on people <laughs> Hey, I want my bank tellers to mind his own business. Yeah, don't look at me. Don't look at me in the face. Don't look at me in the eye. And, and you pointed out in the synopsis, Commissioner Gordon shows up everywhere Bruce Wayne is. I mean, 
I guess I can see him being on, like, the board of directors for, like, a Gotham charity or, or Wayne fundraiser type of thing like that. I, I guess it, it's a little bit weird, but, I, okay, so he's there just so that Batman can, or Bruce can overhear this thing about Two-Face's new robbery, which will he be able to get the same information from Alfred or from a newspaper? But my, my bigger question is... Why do Alfred and Commissioner Gordon go to a baseball game together? <laughs> like, if you were supposedly a good detective, a good cop, and this wealthy man said, hey, I'm going to help you guys set a trap for a criminal, and we're going to get Batman in on it, and my butler is going to be there sitting next to you, I would have questions. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is straight out of Batman 66 is what this yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like, you know, we've got to get we got to give uh, Neil Hamilton and Alan Napier so much screen time per episode. <laughs> so they go to the baseball game together. OK, that that's that's what you're going to do this episode. OK, uh, you know, uh, Chief O'Hara is not there and, and, and Anne Harriet. But other than that, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's or it's like, you know, a CW show now. It's like. Well, we've got to have, you know, we've got to, on the Flash, we've got to get Cisco so much airtime. He's got to be on here so many, you know, so many minutes or, you know, or whatever. Right. So it's, it's, yeah, it's like, these are comic book characters. They don't have to show up. You know? so, <laughs> like, if, if Gordon is there waiting for Two-Face to strike, why is he in the seat in the middle of a row, like, where his movement is going to be impeded? What if Alfred didn't want to go to a baseball game? What if he had plans that night? And Bruce is like, um, no, <laughs> you're going to game. I got your ticket. He's like, <laughs> I know Alfred nowadays is an MI6, you know, badass. And, I mean, he did have military training back in the day, too. But, you know, so Batman's like, okay, Two-Face might show up, Alfred. I want you at this baseball game in case this insane criminal who's armed shows up, you know? (laughs) And then there's the whole thing about setting a trap for somebody like that in a place full of, you know, uh, fans and innocent people, you know? Oh boy! Yeah, I, I do like on page ten, like once when Two Face strikes during the second inning, when the batter had two balls, two strikes, and two men on base. What if that didn't occur? Like, what if what if the pitcher was throwing like a no hitter or something, or like a, a shutout, and like that would Two Face have just like just ah gosh, one thing I just asked for one thing for a batter to get, to have like two men on base, two balls, and two strikes in the second inning. Why is that so hard? What we don't find out in this issue is that Bruce Wayne was a owner of uh, partial owner of the Gotham Mammoths, and he asked them for that outcome. And then there was this big investigation and all this scandal about Bruce Wayne having paying them to throw the game, and you know all these people were banned from the the Baseball Hall of Fame, and all <laughs> that. That or the umpire was Leslie Nielsen from The Naked Gun. Oh my god! <laughs> he was just he was he was making obviously bad calls and everything just in order to pro- prolong this inning. But... <laughs> Reggie Jackson's in there. Must kill the queen. The queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got to point out something funny. Speaking of which, on it's page Enrico seven... Palazzo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Enrico, I was trying to think of his name. Enrico Palazzo. That's his name. Yes. Thank you. I was try- I was going to say that, and I couldn't think of his name. Thank you. <laughs> God, I haven't seen that forever. I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Back when we could when, laugh uh, with OJ. Yeah, it, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, oh, OJ. Okay. Um, on page seven, panel four, 
Batman and Robin try to enter the tiniest Batmobile ever. (laughs) That is is a clown car Batmobile right there. I mean, it's like Batman doesn't even have any legs. Uh, It's like, oh, man, guys. I don't know if that was a rough layout by Cockrum and heck drew it really quickly, but that's the only place in the book where the art's like actually not competent, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I know cars can be difficult to draw, but yeah, woo, yeah. Possibly my favorite panel, and it's not anything really original. It's something very simple, something we've seen before, but I just kind of love this visual gag for like an action story. It's on page 10, the bottom, the second to last panel, when one of the twin henchmen opens the door and you just see Batman's fist just punching the guy in the face and you see his nose flattening. I just, I, I got a kick out of that every time. I'm a sucker for that type of physical bit of just like action. Just the door opens and the fist just right in the face. Yeah, I, I like it when Batman does stuff like that. It's kind of like in the first Batman movie when the guy's coming down the corridor and Michael Keaton's just standing there yeah. and he just throws his fist up and, yeah. ah, you know, right in the face. Yep. That's the, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I, that, yeah there's, some, there's some nice little action bits here. I am kind of curious why it seems they knock out the twins and then Batman tells Robin to stay with Two-Face. Then he tackles them again. Didn't they knock them out? I mean, it's like, did they get up and try to run away? It, that's why Two-Face hired them. You have to take them out twice. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course we get the first time that the Jason in costume loses his crap. Uh, won't be the last time. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And he goes straight to, to the throttling, uh, here. Yeah. That uh, last panel on page 11, he's got the whole crazy eyes. He's yeah. Yeah. It's like you low life slime ball, you murdering. Yeah. So some anger issues there, Batman. Uh, I don't know. You might want to report that to HR. Uh, <laughs> I have to say that if the rest of the story wasn't so corny and didn't have so many, this, this book has so many corny one-liners, uh, Two-Face wanting to slide into second base would be kind of fun, I think, and just show how nuts he is. But mm-hmm. there's a bad pun in like every panel and it just kind of kills it. I think, and you never get the idea that Two Face is really that big of a threat to anybody. I mean, you know, he's he is very much like a '60s Batman villain in a lot of ways here. Yeah, you know? he's he's a little bit too manic and too crazy. He this is a this is a um, Tommy Lee Jones Two Face, like the crazy manic version that comes right out of the TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the Tommy Lee Jones. You know, every time he was interviewed, he was like, well, that's cartoons. So I thought I'd just play <laughs> cartoons. My grandson wanted me to, so that's why I did it. You know, that, that type that that, that that type thing. You know, yeah, it, it definitely. Um, the exchange between Batman and Jason, you know, was, you know, Batman's like, you know, I was wrong, but I was trying to protect you. I didn't bother to take the part about your dad out of Two-Face's file, or at least encrypt it, because I secretly want you to seek revenge. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, and it's like, again, it, in a different story, this would be a really meaty, interesting situation, and like a good conversation for them, but it's like, okay, Batman, you're not a very good detective if you're going after the guy who murdered Jason's dad, and Jason is acting a little weird. Like, he's not getting out of bed, and he seems kind of bratty right now. Might there be a connection? Even if you don't think Jason knows the truth, is it possible he could have found it? Like, ask the question. (laughs) Yeah, world's greatest detective. Yeah. (laughs) And I like Jason asking, am I washed up as Robin? Only Rob (laughs) Kelly knows for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but 
like again, like when you see this done really well, and parts of this storyline were take were adapted for Robin's reckoning on Batman the animated series. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a different Robin, a different murder, but like the same type of situation when he's going after Zuko, and that plays out wonderfully. They they give it the level of drama and the level of seriousness that it needs, and still in the guise of a, a cartoon that is suitable for kids, but enjoyable for adults, and it's. This type of story can be done really well, but this case, it's just not. <laughs> yeah, and did I mention I met Kevin Conroy and Lauren Lester? I haven't mentioned it on Nightcast, <laughs> but but I did, and they were awesome. Uh, go listen to uh, JLU Cast that came out in December and and hear all about it. But yes, it was when you said that I said I'd say, hey, I didn't mention that on Nightcast. <laughs> I got to meet Kevin Conroy and Lauren Lester, Batman and Robin. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, cool. uh, I will point out, like I, one thing I think is funny is Two-Face gets out on the roulette wheel and Batman points to the guy operating and says, hit the switch. And it's just this one panel of this guy going, okay. I mean, it's, just, it's so weird. It's like, why did they, why did they need that panel there? You know, it's, it's so, we didn't really need that. And, and just the way the guy says, it's not even like, oh, okay, Batman. Like he's kind of weirded out. He's just like, okay, this happens every day. Batman comes in. I hit yeah, a switch. <laughs> There's a lot of empty space in that for just a small word balloon. You wonder if there was there should have been more there and like he should have said, "Okay, I'll do that, but it'll drop the ball that will kill him." Cuz yeah. cuz the next panel is Batman's like, "Oh, I didn't really think about that. He's going to die." And before Batman <laughs> can swing in to actually save him, Robin puts himself in danger to do it. Yeah, I mean, this I think Collins is going out of his way to show that that Jason is like competent to be Robin, like he's super He's super fit for the job, other than you know wanting to kill Two Face, uh, which he learns his lesson here. Apparently, as far as Collins is concerned, Jason's bloodlust is 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 taken care of and sponged away because he saves Two Face rather than try to kill him as he did earlier in the book. Uh, unfortunately, other writers, uh, including Jim Starlin, uh, will take this type of action by Jason and run crazy with it. So <laughs> this is, you know, and run with it to its natural conclusion. So, yeah, he's, he set him up here to fail, but he's trying to show that Jason – he's smarter than Batman. I mean he figures out the whole deal with him coming back to the casino because it's the only reason that it fits Two-Face's M.O. And Batman doesn't even seem to be bothered by that, mm-hmm. which is not any version of Batman I've ever run across that, that wouldn't you know keep pondering. I mean all the goofiness and intentional silliness aside, Adam West was always – trying to figure out what the criminals were up to and how it all matched their M.O., you know? So this Batman is doesn't seem concerned with that. <laughs> it's not a good showing for Batman, again. <laughs> no, and that seems to be the trend for Collins' issues, unfortunately. But, uh, but hey, we've only got one more. One more, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, one more. <laughs> That's all I've got for this issue, Batman 411. When, I, when I'm reviewing these, I was like, I, I don't even feel the need to nitpick them as much because it's just like, yeah, it just is. It's, God, it's just the, the inconsistency of the tone is what is killing me because I was like, yeah. make this a children's book or make it a serious comic. But it feels like they're trying to do both or accidentally stumbling into both. But one way or another... It's not good. There, there's goodness in it, but not enough to make it enjoyable. Well, you know, it's it's kind of like 
if you really look at what he's doing here and what we read from Barr and Davis before Batman Year Two, they're essentially trying to do the same thing, I think. They're trying to tell a classic-type Batman story in a modern setting, in a modern style, but the difference is is that Barr and Davis completely pull it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why they pull it off. One, I, I don't know, there's this wink to the audience with Barr and Davis. It's like, yeah, we're doing Bill Finger and Dick Sprang, but we're doing it now. And these giant props and and it's there's there's larger than life villains, but they're doing some awful things like the Joker's like lobotomizing Catwoman and you know the Scarecrows using fear gas and killing all these people and things. It, it has it, the modern edge of a, of a comic from that era, but it has that fun aspect of the the fifty the forties fifties sixties Batman. But it works. I, I don't know why it works with them and not here, but it just doesn't and i think part of the reason is you don't have a strong consistent artist like davis and i just don't think uh collins has the ear for dialogue that that bar does yeah I, I think it's uh, part of it is the certainly the consistency of the art helps to f- make it feel more cohesive and more natural but part of it i just think is the basic skill set of of the the writers and i think bar had the advantage of being in the world of DC Comics for a lot of years before he got to this point. He mm, had been sure. working in this realm. He had been he just he lived with these comics and Max Allen Collins was not a comics novice and certainly he had he was a veteran of comic strips, but that's a different voice. That's a different sub medium kind of and it's just it's a different world and he just he wasn't in part. So I just I don't think he really knew what was expected of him or or had the the voice or the vision for this world to just to do the type of Batman stories that the readers were probably well, I mean it's I I mean I'm assuming what the readers wanted at that time, you know, that we're now looking at this thirty years removed, but Yeah, and if if you took this story and stripped it into a comic strip and with all of its little puns and its it's the dialogue and the emphasis on the the zaniness of Two-Face, then it might work better, especially if you were doing a Dick Tracy-type strip version mm-hmm. of Batman. And you would maybe accept it more because this is what's going on in Dick Tracy at the time. And so, you, just have, you have different expectations for the story when you're, when you're approaching something like that. The, way, the same way, if you're getting a prestige format graphic novel, you have different expectations for what the subject matter and the tone might be than if you're getting a you know a monthly comic or something that you get off the newsstands. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know, but yeah. Anyway, I think I think we've flogged this horse uh, <laughs> enough. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I do think so. So uh, yeah, that was Batman four hundred and eleven. And right now we're going to take another short promotional break. And when we come back, the fourth chapter of Batman Year Two. Stick around. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Oh, hey, I was looking at these old comics and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold parallel- that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. 
Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly f*** up. <laughs> she goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. <laughs> um, and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Uh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast, where two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. Okay, we're back with Detective Comics number 578, cover dated September 1987, on sale according to Mike's Amazing World on June 23rd, 1987. June 23rd in 1989 would be a pretty big day for Batman, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> Todd McFarlane and Pablo Marcos uh, provide the cover again with the mandatory trade dress and orange background. Teeth bared, Batman crouches down, his massive cape billowing behind him, and his right hand is his gun. On his left is the Reaper's scythe, pointing at the reader in an almost 3D-like fashion. So what do you think of this one, Ryan? Even though I've been critical of the weapon, the the way the Reaper uses this, because I, I do not understand how this is a physically useful tool in, in like killing and everything, like, even though that... I kind of like this cover. I actually think this is... <sighs> This one might be my favorite cover of this miniseries because of how simple it is. And for McFarlane, this is relatively streamlined. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like him with a gun. I don't like him with this giant scythe thing. But the composition, at least, it it looks cool. It's different. It's striking because he's got these two weapons that are thematically important to this story. It's not distracting the way... I mean, I really liked the cover to issue three with Batman gripping, like, the uh, the angel in the cemetery, but I was kind of distracted by, like, what was the foreground image and what's in the background, so... Mm-hmm. I still think I probably like the cover to issue three a little bit more, but I do like this cover. I, I think this is a fine cover. Yeah, I like it, too. I think... The anatomy is actually pretty good for McFarlane at the time, and uh, the cape's not too ridiculous. I mean, it's not actually any more ridiculous than a lot of other Batman artists. And uh, it's real symbolic of what goes on. The scythe is on the other hand (laughs) instead of the the shoe being on the other foot. You know, this is the final chapter of it, and we kind of got to assume, since this is Batman Year 2, that Batman comes out victorious. And this tells us that, you know, the Reaper's going down. Uh, Batman's got his weapon, so that means... He's partially disarmed him, so it's it kind of says quite a bit with a simple image, and I, I like it. I think this isn't this on some version of the trade paperback now. I think, or is that the 
cover. The, I, th- I thought there was some version of this that had this as the cover, but I could be wrong. Maybe. But uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not up on the. I still got my uh, single issues. I won't call them floppies because I know some people are sensitive about that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I still got my single issues, so I don't have a trade. So, but uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty strong cover. So I, I like it. Batman Year Two Chapter Four. So shall ye reap. Uh, Mike W. Barr was a writer. Todd McFarlane was on art, pencils, and inks on this one. Adrian Roy was a colorist. Todd Klein, the letterer. Denny O'Neill, the editor. And Batman, created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger, of course. After their trap for the Reaper failed last issue, mob boss Mr. Morwitz chastises his head gunsel, Joe Chill. Chill assures Morwitz that now that he has studied both the Reaper and the Batman in action, he will be able to dispose of them both soon. The Reaper overhears them plan their next meeting at the warehouse for Friday, then visits local police informant Blinky Morgan, threatening his life if he doesn't spread the news to the police. Friday evening at Stately Wayne Manor, Bruce Wayne prepares for a date with Rachel Caspian and is surprised to get the approval of the normally doubting Leslie Tompkins. Both she and Alfred are astonished by how happy Bruce seems to be. At a posh Chinese restaurant, the waiter brings the couple their fortune cookies. Rachel cracks hers open to find an engagement ring inside. Bruce asks her to marry him, to which she quickly responds, yes. The unseen fortune inside presciently reads, you may avoid your fate, but never escape it. To Mr. Gordon and his men surround the mob warehouse, despite wondering if they are entering into a trap. They begin their assault, and the Reaper begins his. Before Chill can act, the Reaper runs Morwitz through with his scythe, and the police turn their attention to him. Batman arrives and commandeers a SWAT van, crashing into the building and striking the Reaper down after nearly running over a dozen cops and Gordon. Chill aims at the Reaper but hits the van and only Batman's quick intervention saves him from the explosion, while Gordon and his men escape the exploding building themselves. Outside, they find one of Morwitz's men still alive, who informs Gordon that Batman was only working with them to stop the Reaper. Now understanding the motives of his former ally, Gordon lights the bat signal at police headquarters. But Bruce Wayne ignores it, instead visiting Rachel at her home. He cryptically informs her he is about to do something he knows she will hate him for, but he pledges that when he's done, he will be with her for the rest of their lives. Rachel tells him she doesn't believe the real Bruce Wayne would do anything he thinks is wrong and tells him she'll be waiting for him when he returns. In a filthy tenement building, Joe Chill sleeps. Batman stands over him and places his gun at his temple. When Chill awakens, the Dark Knight tells him that both Morwitz and the Reaper are dead. Chill admits that he was under orders to kill Batman after the Reaper, but sees no reason to follow through with it now. But Batman has something to show him before they part ways. In Crime Alley, Batman asks Chill if he recognizes his surroundings. He reminds Chill of the attempted robbery and double homicide he committed there 20 years ago. Chill refutes his claims, asking how would he know about all of this. Batman pulls back his cowl to reveal the face of the only witness, Bruce Wayne. Chill reaches for his gun, but Wayne smacks it out of his hand. begins to pummel the criminal, asking him where he would like to be shot. The heart, like them, behind the ear, in the mouth? Chill doesn't believe he has it in him to murder him. Wayne places the gun at Chill's temple once more, and Chill's head explodes with a bloody bang. But Wayne never fired his gun. Across the street stands the laughing figure of the Reaper, smoking gun barrel held high. The Reaper taunts that he followed Batman from the warehouse. Knowing his secret, he tells Batman to meet him at his father's monument, the under-construction Wayne Foundation, for a most ironic conflict. Batman ponders the meaning of that veiled message while waiting for the Reaper's arrival. 
Feeling this is the last fight of his career, he still intends to walk away victorious, although his enemy has other plans. The two caped combatants engage again, and the Reaper loses one of his scythes, which Batman picks up. The two parry, then Batman shoots the other scythe off the Reaper's hand and cuts the chin strap on his helmet. Somehow, the police and local reporters have been alerted to this fight, and Commissioner Gordon plans to go up and see what is going on, but the fight is almost over. Batman strikes at the Reaper with his own scythe, and he falls backward, losing his helmet. As he hangs from an extended girder, Batman recognizes the face of his potential father-in-law, Judson Caspian. He reaches out a hand to help him up, telling him it's over. Caspian agrees and is glad to see he was wrong about his opponent not being a killer. He falls to his death, happy to know Batman will make a fine replacement. Batman looks at his gun and drops the weapon that took his father's life into the foundation of the building dedicated to it. Later, Bruce pushes back the reporters swarming outside Rachel's home. He informs his despondent fiance he knows about her father and tells her they can get away from all of this. But Rachel feels she must make amends for her father's evil deeds. She pulls the nun habit from her closet and tells Bruce she is sorry. Bruce assures her he does understand and bids her goodbye, the shadow of the bat following behind him, as always. Later still, Bruce takes Leslie to the new Thomas Wayne Memorial Clinic, where she can work while Bruce is out doing his own. He tells Alfred to wait for Miss Tompkins, and the Batman swings out into the night once more. The end. Come on, baby. The final chapter. What do we think? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question, huh? <laughs> I, I did not like this. I did not find my joy with this. Okay. <laughs> um, this is all the more frustrating because I know that Mike Barr can tell really good Batman stories. Mm-hmm. That the utter failure of this miniseries, I think, just feels all the more powerful. Um because this is not a good story. Like, And as this final chapter, when I was reading it last night, I kept making a comparison in my mind to the movie Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, which I have some bad feelings about. <laughs> um, and the things that kept coming up were, there's a lot of spectacle, there's a lot of action, and there are a lot of character beats and moments that should have profound dramatic effects on people but i didn't find that any of them were resonating because everybody was acting in ways that i didn't recognize or couldn't understand like it's just like everything is so out of character that i'm uh, my notes for this thing is basically a page of questions like why what is this why like all this stuff like and i just didn't get it. i was like so frustrated so I don't want to spend like the next hour just ripping this thing to shreds, but I feel like I'm going to. And, and I'm, I, if this thing gets overly negative for the listeners, I apologize in advance if you have some good feelings about this chapter. But who? Oh, I know I don't like this. No, I don't. Yeah, uh, I'm not too far from you. Uh, it seems like everyone wants to go home in this chapter (laughs) it's just like let's just get this over with it's kind of like you and me right now honestly it's (laughs) uh it's oddly paced i mean i think that's part of it i think 
we talked about that last time, how McFarlane jammed the ending of the story like in the last page in like tiny, tiny panels. Right. And I get that feeling here because the battle with Batman and the Reaper on that building should have been a huge climax. I mean, there should have been – for one, I mean, the, the biggest sin of this is the – and I had this later in my notes, but I'm just going to get to it now – there's no big reveal of Judson Caspian to Bruce. Nope. It's like this little tiny, tiny, tiny one-inch figure of the Reaper and Batman as the Reaper's hanging with his back to the reader. And, you know, he's hanging from the skirter and, and, and Batman's like, Caspian? And, you know, and, and and then the next panel we see his face. But it's still tiny. There's There should be this giant reveal of, of Batman seeing the face of his potential father-in-law here. Yeah. I mean, he had no idea this guy was the Reaper at all. And yeah. this should have been a huge shock and a shock. I mean, we all knew he was the Reaper, you know, which maybe they shouldn't have told us he was the Reaper and they should have set up a mystery or something. But, you know, Todd gets to draw one badass splash page on the last page of this comic, but the rest of the story suffers because he wants to draw 40 feet of Batman cape over a cityscape. Yeah, you know? so it's like he's not doing the the story. I think the story is flawed, and like you said, because Mike W. Barr is such a good writer, he is such a good Batman writer. It 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 makes it all the worse for wear because we know that this had tremendous potential to be great. Right, and there, there were definitely there were times when I like, especially when we get to like some of the action beats, like the fight at the end, but also like the fight at the warehouse, where I'm wondering, I'm like, okay. How much of this is the fault of the artist because some of this art is confusing and some of it is like, this is a case where I would like to know like what was going on behind the scenes. Did Barr give McFarlane a script in advance and say, follow this to a T and that's what happened? In which case, the script was pretty lousy in some of these places. Or was this the way Todd wanted to lay this out and he was just adapting kind of in general scenes a little bit more Marvel style like mm-hmm. like this is like okay this is what the fight is going to be and McFarlane just at this stage in his career wasn't great about telling a continuous story with these panels because there's a lot of confusion and just like but also like parts where it's like did Todd understand like the character dynamics of, of what's going on? Because when Batman steals a police truck, like a SWAT van and drives it through the wall of the warehouse and you see bodies of cops flying through the air and everything was like, okay, some of those guys are injured. Some of them might be hospitalized. Some of them might be dead. Is that in Batman's you know milieu? Is that the type of justice that he meets out that he would recklessly endanger these cops? If we don't know they're corrupt, like Flass is, crew from the from the last year what what's going on and then putting gordon in the same danger like he's like we don't know how the reaper got so close to gordon like just one panel he's next to him and he's gonna kill them why is the reaper that close why is the reaper targeting gordon or is he why is he gonna kill them like what's leading up and then batman just plows into them with a truck knocking the reaper and gordon it's like what the hell like <laughs> but it's like okay was that is that bar's fault is that what he wrote or is that just McFarlane just not being able to convey this in a way that makes sense for the characters? I'm just, I don't know, but it's confusing and it's it's taking me out of the story. It's it's so I can't like it. So, based on the fact that I mean, now we've seen Barr have Batman do some things that maybe other writers wouldn't have Batman do, like you know, threatening prison rape <laughs> against profile and and using human shields. We've seen we've seen that, but I have to blame that type of stuff in this book 
on McFarlane because we haven't seen Batman do that in the rest of the detective run that he's done. And I've never seen him do anything like any of these things in his Batman the Outsiders run or his Brave and the Bold stories before that. I mean, Barr's written quite a bit of Batman by this point. Mm -hmm. Several years worth of Batman by this point. Yeah. Uh, so I have to say this is... And I don't know if this was written Marvel style, like you said, and it was just a plot, and McFarlane took the plot and laid it out, or it was full script, and McFarlane said, screw it, I'm drawing it the way I want to anyway, uh, because, you know, we do know Todd, you know, has an ego. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I don't know, but, I mean, just the fact that the Reaper, as he's falling, we see this panel of the Reaper's body falling, and he gets this caption, but now I know, you will make a fine replacement for me. Did he say that as he was falling to his death? <laughs> But now I know you were making a fine replacement for me. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, it's like, Batman's like, what? What did he say? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the the, the, the pacing, I mean, I, again, we, we talked about this last time. The whole motivation of Batman picking up a gun just because the Reaper kicked his ass doesn't quite work. No. Um, and in fact, I just went ahead and I, you know, I know we're not going to cover it for God knows how long. But I went and read Batman Full Circle, the sequel to this, and I think this story would work a whole lot better if Batman, if they wanted Batman to use a gun, that Batman encounters Joe Chill, then decides to pick up that gun because he's going to use it on him, not because he wants to use it against the Reaper, who he has no emotional connection with other than he kicked his ass. Right. And apparently Barr thought that too, because in the... <laughs> When he's describing the events of Batman Year Two in full circle, Batman says, I took up the gun when Joe Chill resurfaced. No, you didn't, Batman. You took up the gun when the Reaper kicked your butt. Yeah, that's, that's him retconning his own work. <laughs> yep, exactly. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And by the way, I will say, Dr. Ange, who I said we would mention again, was very nice to send me a copy of Batman Full Circle signed by both Mike W. Barr and Alan Davis. So thank you, Dr. Ange. That was very nice of you. And that is a story that I still actually really enjoy. And I think it's a sequel to a, a very good sequel to a comic that I now have lots of problems with. But I still like Batman Full Circle. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Like the, this whole story, like the Reaper coming in and targeting like these mob bosses and Batman having to work alongside the mob and work with Joe Chill and partner with him while he wants to kill him and yet he keeps saving him so we can like prolong this and eventually come back like I just I don't understand these things don't make sense I don't understand where this is in the timeline because it doesn't feel like Batman's second year this doesn't feel like a, a Batman year two it shouldn't be and like all like you just have these discordant things and I feel like like, Barr had one story that he wanted to tell, and then editorial was like, no, make this a year two, and then he kind of like collapsed some of these ideas, but they just, some of them are just, some of them I think are bad ideas, and some of them I think are bad execution, but it's, right. I, I don't know, it's just, there are just like so many things, and it's simple things, like I don't understand the Reaper's plan, why the Reaper leaks to the police that the, the mob bosses are going to be at this warehouse, and then the Reaper shows up to start slaughtering them. Like, why was it better for the Reaper's plan if the cops were there? Yeah, exactly. Like, why did that make it easy? Like, unless he ha was having a hard time getting to some of these guys, and why why did he need the chaos of that police ambush 
to get in there and start killing these bosses. I don't understand because he was already following them. He already knew where they were and where they were going to be. Like, this doesn't make sense. And then when the cops actually, like, spring their ambush, they just start shooting, like, the, the mob bosses, like, like <laughs> yeah. the guards, like, the two guys standing out, like, the, the SWAT, they start sniping these guys, and, like, they open up the thing and just, like, open fire. It's like, um, don't think the cops are supposed to do that. I don't think No, I don't think so either. I noted that, too. That's in my notes. Yeah, it's like, wow, they just decided to just assassinate these guards. Yeah. And yeah. start this full on. They're not trying to arrest anybody. They're just coming in guns blazing. I never hear anybody say, halt, you're under arrest. They just start shooting. You know, that I'm pretty sure is pretty damn illegal. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they've never, these guys have been operating for quite some time. And I mean, I'm, you know, it's, I understand they probably want to bring them down, but apparently they weren't a huge priority for Batman or Gordon before this. Right. Uh, so, so it's. And- <laughs> And again, like, Batman is prioritizing saving Joe Chill over saving Gordon, and it's like, all this stuff that doesn't make sense, and then with, like, the, the subplots with Bruce and Rachel and, like, him proposing to her, and, like, why doesn't he tell Alfred and Leslie that he's gonna propose? Like, why does he have to keep that a secret? But they're like, oh yeah, Bruce, we haven't seen you. You're so happy. It feels like Batman and Bruce Wayne are completely separate people. And not in, like, an interesting, you know, psychological profile type of way. It feels like what happens to one is not having an effect on the other in the beginning of the storyline. If Barr was drawing attention to the fact that Batman is going through some intense, like, like stuff, like, he's unraveling because of the compromises he has to make, and Rachel is the only thing that's holding him together, the only ray of light in his life, that would be one thing, but we're not seeing that. It's just like, yeah, I like this girl, I'm going to marry her, something like that, and then I'm going to give up Batman. It's like, where is this coming from? This doesn't feel like I'm reading the same character. And then, when he goes to her apartment before the whole Joe Chill thing, and you you mentioned in your in your synopsis, he's like, I like, okay, Chris, if Cindy walked up to you and said, I have to do something that you would never forgive me for if you knew what it was, but I promise, after I do it, everything will be fine. Would you say, <laughs> well, all right, baby, <laughs> you, you do you, do you, I trust you, whatever like that. Or would you have at least one follow-up question? Right, yeah. Like, yeah. Really? Like, he says, I have to do something that you would damn me for. It's like, Rachel, ask the question, what are you going to do? Like, what is, like, like I, I said, that's where these things are. Like, this is not a real release. I don't care about these characters now, if this is the way they're going to talk to each other. Yeah. So it's, oh. And then. Yeah. Go ahead. No, well, go ahead. So, again, yeah, and I'm, and I'm sorry, but, like, you mentioned we get no dramatic payoff to the reveal that Caspian is the father. You're, like, and that's absolutely true. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Like, the only reveal is that, oh, once Rachel finds out who her dad was, she breaks off the marriage and becomes a nun. It's like, oh, okay. Bruce seems to take it pretty well. He takes it in stride. What did that mean for Bruce? Like, holy crap, this guy has been right under my nose. The woman I was going to marry, her dad was this guy who nearly killed me. Like, there's no fallout to this and it's even more so like we're denied the moment we're denied several moments with the Batman because 
uh, it, it kills me because when Batman takes Joe Chill out to the alley and everything, I like it. I like the way that's composed. I like that Batman is in the shadows in that entire like, couple pages and everything because you feel the weight of this thing. Like he's taking him out there and he's going to kill this guy. This is Batman ready to cross the line. He's been driven to this point. I wish we had actually had a a clear progression to this point, but okay, for the purposes of this, I'm, I'm with you in that scene, and I like that scene. And then he rips off the mask, and he shows, he reveals the truth, but unlike the pre-crisis version of the story, like, Joe Chill, like, we get nothing from Joe Chill about what this means, that mm-hmm. Batman is really Bruce Wayne, and that, oh my god, I created Batman by killing his parents. What the hell yeah. have I wrought onto, onto, the society, onto society and the criminal underworld? Like, that means nothing to him. But then... As much as I don't like that omission, then Batman is holding the gun to him, and was Batman going to pull the trigger? Yeah, we never know. And I think we probably should know, or at least that should matter. That question should come up. The fact that the Reaper kills him before Batman does. It's like, was Batman going to cross the line? Was he going to murder him in cold blood? I would like an answer to that question, or I would like to at least have Bruce Wayne think about that question. And maybe spend some time with that, but we don't. And it's just glossed over. And then, like, like literally, like the Reaper and Bruce Wayne—they're in Crime Alley. How does how does this play out? Like, yeah, the Reaper is like laughing at him or whatever. And then the next page, they're fighting. There's no background, and the Reaper is saying, "I stalked you from the warehouse, waiting for my chance to strike. Now your secret is mine. We shall meet at your monument to your father, where we shall finish this most ironic conflict." The next page, the next panel, is Batman flying to the under construction Wayne Tower, or whatever, and the Reaper's waiting for him. What happened? Like, where? Like, where did like the Reaper just disappeared and like said like we're gonna meet? Like, why aren't they fighting in Crime Alley? Why didn't like? Okay, they're meeting in Crime Alley, but we want the conf- we want the final battle to be in Wayne Tower. How do we get there? Magic, <laughs> like it's right. Like, well, uh, Batman's floating. I mean, yeah, the, the, the 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 top panel on page eighteen shows an unmasked Batman with his giant cape. He's floating horizontally across this small panel. The Reaper is right above him, literally right above him, almost the same size as him, apparently, because he's just a black blob. With humongous size, the size of an Oldsmobile, uh, and uh, and he's firing directly at Batman, but shooting through his cape. That is the suddenly Batman is levitating, the Reaper's levitating, and I, like the, any gravity and weight this story had literally is just gone because McFarland refuses to draw it. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's, and and getting back to that scene. This this whole thing, I think, and I don't I don't know that because I I don't know if I've ever seen. Uh, Barr admit to this, but I think that you know the whole thing was he wanted to retell that story, that pre-crisis story from Batman no- number forty-seven in nineteen forty-eight, the origin of the Batman. That that is kind of the classic version of Batman's origin. It gets reprinted more than any. It's the most complete version of Batman's origin from the Golden Age, mm-hmm. and it's written by Bill Finger. Batman catches up to Joe Chill. He reveals his identity. And then Chill, who is shaken by the fact that he created Batman, runs out to his gang and says, Batman's here. And he said, I I created him because I killed his parents. The dudes get pissed and shoot him full of holes before they get a chance to ask him who Batman is. And that is so poetic and perfect. It's such a great story. I mean, even 70 years later, it's 
one of the best Batman stories ever written. It's got such a great hook. They did a great reinterpretation of it in the Untold Legend of the Batman, Len Wein and, and John Byrne and Jim Aparo. Mm-hmm. And like you said, everything great about that moment is lost here except for the moment where he pulls his cow off. And he's doing it in an alley where who knows who's standing around, you know, it's like, which actually that comes into play in full circle. There's somebody standing around that we don't see. We won't get into that because we're not talking about that. But and I think Barr wanted to redo that story. He wanted to work in the fact that Batman carried a gun in the early, early Golden Age stories. And so he devised this thing, this myth around the gun that killed the Waynes. And I mean, all these questions are asked why in the world wouldn't Bruce Wayne, like I said, back years ago when we first covered Batman year two or the, the issue of detective before Batman year two, why would Bruce Wayne keep the gun when perhaps that could have led the police to his parents murderer? You know, it, it, there's germs of good, several good ideas here, but he like threw them all in a blender and it's like, you know, I like apples and I like, you know, hot sauce, but I'm not going to throw them in a, bl- in a blender together and like, ooh, this tastes really good. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, and like you said, the whole thing with Rachel and, and Bruce, I mean, why does Bruce continue to be Batman at the end of this story? Is it because Rachel spurned him because she, you know, even though he understood why she did? Is it because he wants to prove the the Reaper wrong that he's not that type of a vigilante that he's not going to be lethal because Batman he was ready to hang it up. Is it because he didn't get to kill Joe Chill because that's what he wanted to do? I mean, I I don't want to follow a Batman that's still Batman because he got, got robbed of killing, you know, uh, the guy that murdered his parents, you know. It, it's there's so many so many uh, there should have been a coda issue or this should have been an extra long issue, something. There's there's way too much to unpack here that's just glossed over. We get the totally unnecessary opening of the Thomas Wayne Memorial Clinic because Barr is obsessed with Leslie Tompkins. Uh, you know, so, and, and, and we get that last unnecessary, last big splash panel. It's nice in a very Todd McFarlane type way of Batman, but I mean, how much could we could have used that page to unpack what Batman was thinking, what Bruce Wayne, you know, exactly the question, would I have killed him? Would I have pulled the trigger? And in the moment when Jill is shot, I mean, McFarland storytelling totally blows this moment because he's, Bruce has got the gun to his temple. He's facing chill and chills like, well, in the next panel, we get chill who's floating in the air because he's gotten shot in the head. His back would have been to Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And his head is exploding. It looks like there's nothing left of his head. But in the next panel, Batman's caught his body. Bruce has caught his body. And we see Joe Chill's head. And all that we see is the uncolored drops of blood coming out of his mouth. Where the hell was he shot? <laughs> you know, I'm going mean, to go out on like a limb and say... I'm going to go out on a limb and say... Um... 1987, I don't think this Todd McFarlane guy is a very good artist, and I don't think he's going to have much of a future in this industry. <laughs> I mean, there is a, again, like we said last time, there's an energy to this. There is an edginess. There's that, like I said before, there's that hair metal edginess to it that is somewhat appealing, especially when you're, you know, 13 or whatever I was when I read this, 12, 13. I understand that. I mean, the first few pages of this book, before we see any Batman, 
with the red, black, and white character skulking around alleyways. Mm-hmm. He's terrorizing an overweight guy. It looks like it could come straight out of a Spawn comic a few years later. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it dead on looks like a Spawn comic. And, uh, of course, McFarland is, is unfettered in this issue. There's no Alfreda Akela right. to uh, rein him in. It's all sorts of squiggly lines. And the panel I've been meaning to talk about since we started on this thing in 1987, when I picked up this book, I looked at page eight, said, holy crap, turned back to the cover and looked for the comic code authority seal. And there it was. Mm. Batman year one did not have a comic code seal on any of the issues. And there was nothing nearly as gory or, you know, potentially damaging to young children as the picture of the Reaper standing there with his scythe running through Mr. Moritz, who is just hanging on it. Yeah. And all the gore and blood coming off of both of his scythes. It is like one of the most blatantly horrific images in a superhero comic I had ever seen up to that point. Yeah, and And, like the coloring on the trade paperback too, just like the red and everything. It's, yeah, it's, (laughs) it's bad. It's just, I mean, over-the-top 1980s horror movie slasher flick gore. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is Jason Voorhees, you know, running somebody through with something. Mm -hmm. It's Freddy Krueger ripping somebody in half. I mean, it, it, and it's got a comic code approval seal on it. Somebody was asleep at the wheel that day. That's all I got to say. I think the the page where you talked about Batman being in shadow, uh, where he reveals his, you know, pulls off his cowl, the Batman in between the panels of the Wayne murder flashback, that is so Bill Sinkovich. Oh, yeah. Really, I mean, it really is. Yeah, that's definitely Bill Sinkovich. But actually, the page right before that, it starts off with Batman in Chill's room and like how dark it is. And I really like that. And that last panel, when you see Crime Alley with the mm-hmm. one street light. And I I love this panel. Like I love this, like how small Joe Chill looks, how Batman is taller, but how the cape is spread out and it's a huge, it's super like it's ridiculously big. But this is an instance where I think it works. It's this ridiculous proportion, but it's in a kind of stylized way that fits a mood and a type of atmosphere of this scene with the the alley and the movie theater and everything like that and I just I really like that panel and the and the cape doesn't bother me it just I think it just looks great yeah it it is a nice panel I got to say that's probably the nastiest I've ever seen crime alley look <laughs> I mean it, it is a grungy looking place that you would never want to come anywhere near mm-hmm. uh and it but it's drawn really well I mean McFarlane for all his shortcomings of storytelling whatever made McFarlane the the superstar artist he was, and I guess in some way still is, when he d- actually draws something, you can see it. it. It's it's it shows through in places here and there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that last panel of Batman, you know, all fullness aside, it's pretty badass that last page. You know, um, it's ridiculous with the cape, but hey, you know, that's that's part of the charm of Batman, right? So, I mean, Bernie Wrightson did it too, so we can't really fault McFarlane for for it too much. No, and, uh, yeah, and yeah. Norm Brayfogle also does some crazy stuff with the cape at times. And oh yeah, and we'll get you know we'll and I mean in a, in a lot of ways there's a lot more connecting Norm Brayfogle and uh, and Todd McFarlane than there is say Norm Brayfogle and like Neil Adams mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. somebody that's more of a realistic type artist, you know. So there's some nice artistic moments in here, and there's some again there's an energy and excitement to it. Uh, but I just wonder would we be having this many problems with this book? If Alan Davis had continued on it, what do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, 
I, I don't imagine we would have hardly any complaints about the art uh, if he was on it. Based on the previous issues of Alan Davis that we did cover, we rarely had any hiccups with the art uh, that we needed to address. Um, I think it would show whether or not the story seemed as problematic if we had had Alan Davis, because then we would know was the script the problem or was there just a failure? Like the art not being able to tell a story the way we're seeing it, because just from panel to panel, there's so much confusion. There's so many, how do these characters get in that position and, and space related to each other? We might not see that. So it's, I don't know. I, I think the story would be better had Alan Davis been on it, but I also think there's, I do think you you kind of mentioned the problem where there are a lot of story ideas in here that individually taken as one might be really good, but thrown into a blender and don't work. I think the Reaper should have been reimagined, like perhaps whole cloth. I like that idea, but I don't think it's like the vigilante that preyed on Gotham before Batman was ever there. Like I, I remember, like one of the. Um, the listener feedback bits that we talked about, like maybe it was Mike Gillis or somebody said like the Reaper who was stalking Gotham city before Batman showed up should have been something like the Punisher or like, um, the shadow or something. It should have been Mm -hmm. something like out of like a crime noir thing, very sleek, very streamlined and just murdering criminals or something and disappearing or something. And that could have been the problem. Like if you've got somebody like the Reaper, that takes us into this weird other kind of sci-fi horror type of story that doesn't necessarily belong in this one. Then a story with Bruce Wayne falling in love with a girl who is devoted to God, but like they have a, a similar connection because they lost their parents to violence and this sort of connection and him feeling like maybe he could give up being Batman for this girl. We've seen that done better, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a that's a good story, as evidenced by the other story that we'll talk about in a couple of seconds. And you could have done something with that. And then finding out that, holy crap, her father is this you know, this villain or this killer that I've been stalking for the past couple of months, that's a major thing. And then the whole thing with Batman finding Joe Chill or perhaps needing to work with the mob for some other reason and and having to talk to Gordon and just say, hey, I've got to do something and you're you're not going to like it. You're going to hunt me for it. You're going to say I've crossed the line and, and I'm sorry, but this is the only way this is going to work and, and needing to team up with criminals or something like that or work with a hired assassin because this Joe Chill doesn't seem like the Joe Chill that we would expect, that we would know from, like, the, the, the man who murdered his parents. It's just, it's this weird thing. Like, this could have been, like, an Henri Ducard type of assassin or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we mentioned that the last time, too. It's it's just these weird things. And individually, these could make for great stories. But thrown in here together, it's a mess that just doesn't come together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it... It, exactly. I, it, yeah, you said it. I'm not gonna even gonna. Yeah. You, I, I agree completely. So there's no point in me belaboring the exact same thing you said. I will say one thing. I don't buy for a minute that Gordon just instantly like, oh, so that what was going on? I mean, and then he goes and lights the bat signal. It's like, really? I mean, aren't you worried about the fact that he endangered your men with through his actions and he almost and, drove. He almost ran you over with a police van like five yeah. pages earlier. Right, and I mean, he's working with, he's becoming an accomplice to known criminals. I mean, that is a criminal act in and of itself. 
You know, I mean, it's like you can't just whitewash that away, Gordon, just because, oh, well, he told me I wouldn't like it. I guess that's what he meant. Well, bullshit. You know, I'm sorry. (laughs) But, you know. If this was going to be year two, this almost needed to be 12 issues, like a long Halloween maxi series type of thing to deal with all of the concepts in this, all of the things and like the fallout and mending these broken relationships. Like this needed a bigger treatment or – what I think would be just as good, if not better, break this up and just take different storylines and tell different stories and, and not cram this into one thing. And don't package this as year two, because as a follow-up to year one, this fails on every conceivable level. Well, and you know, and another thing we talked about in, in the Batman issue is how Batman isn't being a very good detective. Well, he's really not being a detective at all in this series. I mean, because, you know, and, and it's really weird because Barr... This is one, this is Detective Comics, and Barr is a hell of a detective story writer. Yeah. I mean, he wrote yeah. he wrote a lot of great detective issues, uh, I mean, detective stories with Batman. He did the anniversary issue with Sherlock Holmes. He did a lot of elongated man stories that are detective stories. He wrote mm-hmm. The Maze Agency around this time. And so he is a hell of a detective writer, but I think the more interesting story would have been for Batman to find out that the Reaper was Judson Caspian before the end of the book so he could have to deal with the fact that I got to take down the father of the woman I love you know I mean that you know uh, that would have made for a much meatier story as well and that's totally squandered <laughs> so <laughs> but but let's uh, you brought it up so we have to address the the elephant in the room uh, which we were talked about we we're going to do at the end of this a lot of people gave us uh, mentioned this in the feedback of course Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the animated movie, originally released in, uh, I think that was, was that Christmas of 90, was that 93 or 94? I, I know it was a Christmas, I think it was 93. Came yeah, I out think theater. because I think we just celebrated the 25th anniversary. Well, yes, uh, it, to, as of this recording, and sorry people, you're hearing this like probably months <laughs> after we recorded it. Right, it was back in theaters for the, I didn't get to see it, but it, it was back in theaters for like one day. Uh, and yeah, so it was, it, you're right, it's 25 years ago. They're now 26, I guess, getting close. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they released it in theaters. It was developed by the same team that did Batman the Animated Series, same cast. Warner Brothers asked them to do a direct-to-video movie, and then they got bumped up to theatrical release. So this was a quick production time. Uh, accounts vary, but there is no denying there are some very strong similarities between characters and situations in Batman Year Two and Batman Mask of the Phantasm. So let's go through a few of them. Uh, here, just to just to point out, and Ryan, you can jump in any that you want to add or anything, but I got a list here. Uh, skull-faced villain with hooded cloak and cape and a scythe on their hand. Uh, they also announce the demise of their victim dramatically most of the time. So, you know, it's like Fear the Reaper and the, the Phantasm has his thing that he says every time uh, before offing the uh, the criminal. Villain is initially thought to be the father of Bruce Bruce's love interest from the past. Uh, Stacy Keach voices both the father, Carl Beaumont, and the Phantasm. There's a twist, of course, but still the inspiration is there. Right. Uh, Bruce Wayne considers abandoning, abandoning his vow to his parents, having found happiness and romance. In the movie, it's with Andrea Beaumont. In the uh, comic, it's obviously Rachel Caspian. Uh, Batman's allies on the police force turn against him and hunt him. A climactic battle chase ends on a skyscraper construction site, as in this issue. After the final battle of the movie, Batman is washed down the sewers as he was in part one of Batman Year Two. 
there are other similarities, such as the heavy focus on Gotham's mob. But yeah, there's a lot there. Is there anything I missed, Ryan? Um, trying to think. I, no, I think you got the the connections that I had had the, the same ones from the two stories. And again, obviously, I I just think that it was handled better in the movie. But yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, according to John Trumbull's article in back issue number ninety nine, uh, Mike W. Barr noticed these similarities uh, while trying to communicate with story editor and former DC writer Martin Pascoe about rewrites that were being done to an episode that Barr had written for the animated series called Paging the Crime Doctor, which, oddly enough, will probably tie into our next issue of Detective. <laughs> yeah. uh, Pascoe is one of the writers credited with the screenplay of Mask of the Phantasm, along with uh, Alan Burnett, Paul Dini, and Michael Reeves. Uh, Barr noticed several writers with a copy of Year Two on their desks when he visited the Warner Brothers offices. When he saw sketches of the Phantasm, he approached Paul Levitz, claiming his story and characters were being used without payment. And he actually, you know, obviously at DC at the time, they had participation in characters and stories and, and things. And Levitz at first dismissed these claims until Barr said he wanted to, quote unquote, keep this in the family. So take that as you will. Uh, he was given a share of the profits of the film and the Phantasm character itself, but he was told there could be no credit for him or Alan Davis on the film. Which is really interesting. <laughs> um, so this is a pretty sour footnote to an otherwise fantastic film because I, like we said, the Mask of the Phantasm. You know, I, I vacillate. Is it the best Batman movie that's ever been made? It's up there, and there's some damn good Batman movies that have been made. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have a hard time saying it's not at least in the top like three, if not one. I, I go back and forth. It's a great use of a lot of the same themes as year two, but it gives every single aspect of it room to breathe and develop. And it all feels very legit as you watch it. The character relationships seem real. And it's, I mean, in a series that has no uh, shortage of greats, Mask of the Phantasm is a, a crown jewel in the very studded crown of Batman the Animated Series. Plus, <laughs> no doubt about it. Plus, the movie, the ending credits roll to a wonderful little love song sung by Tia Carrere from Wayne's World. Swing! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus Dana Delaney. Plus Dana uh, Delaney, who, yeah, always, uh, always a big lover of hers, so. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah anything Dana Delaney's in. And, and, uh, and it's got one of, I mean, Kevin Conroy's always great as Batman, but it's got some of the, his greatest moments as Batman. <laughs> And his deliveries, yeah. And Actually, my favorite vocal performance in the movie, it's not done by Conroy as Batman, it's not done by Delaney as Andrea Bowman, it's not even done by Mark Hamill as the Joker. It's Harp Bachner, who I always think of as the sleazy Ellis from Die Hard, as the, as, uh, the district attorney, Arthur Reeves, after he has been poisoned by the Joker's laughing gas, when he's in the hospital and the doctors are calming him down and they're sedated him and he's he's starting to catch huh, huh, he's catching his breath and he's looking and like the lightning strikes outside and you just see the shadow of Batman's like silhouette on his and he sees Batman standing in his window and he like panics and then starts to laugh even as you can tell he's terrified and his line reading is so good he's just like <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yes. I love that. I hear that in my head, and I was just like, that is like the best line delivery I've ever heard in the cartoon. Like, to be equal parts terrified, like scared out of your socks, and laughing because you've been poisoned. Just this, oh no! <laughs> it 
<laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, he was just getting calmed down, and then he sees Batman, and he starts losing it again. Yeah, I actually my favorite line in that movie is is uh, when Alfred's like. I, will you be seeing uh, this Beaumont when you return? He's like, you think you know everything about me, don't you? I bloody well ought to. I diapered your bottom, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Alfred's monologue at the very end is really is is very very beautiful because you see Batman okay. thinking that Andrea's dead and just kind of like sitting there with his mask off, just defeated alone in the cave. And he's like, I can save her. And Alfred's like, I don't think she wanted to be saved. He's like, vengeance blackens the heart. He's like, I always thought, I always feared that you would become that which you fought against. He's like, you walk the edge of that abyss every night, but you haven't fallen in. And I thank heaven for that. It's just a yeah. really, really beautiful kind of moment between the two of them. Yeah. Again, it, it's, it's, it's addressing one of the, the elements of this, this comic storyline where they totally just blew past it, right. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that, that moment where Batman questions, you know, his methods and, and revenge and, you know, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Bar, Bar seems to have kind of a contentious relationship with DC in a lot of ways. It, it seems like a lot of times they, where they give a lot of other people a lot of credit they always seem to kind of not uh, with Barr. I don't know if something – I know that one of the projects we're going to talk about fairly soon, I think, uh, on the show, uh, a project uh, Barr did, was controversial with the editor of the Batman books. Um, so I don't know if that kind of set him up for some bad blood with some people. A, but a Persona non grata in the bad offices, yeah. Yeah, possibly. exactly. Yeah, it, it's very odd because DC at the time and the Bat crew at WB – always seem to give like full credit i mean like uh for instance the adaptation of the Hart and rogers La- uh, the laughing fish on the animated series there's one segment in that episode where they they mix in the shark a bit from o'neill and adams joker's five-way revenge yeah everyone gets credit at the <laughs> end of that episode so why couldn't bar and davis get credit for at least inspiring the reaper if i mean the the phantasm is the reaper if nothing else but uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's kind of a sour note, uh, an otherwise great movie. I, you know, I, I don't know, but you know, when I think about it, it does kind of make me, I, I kind of feel for Barr because I mean, I guess he got compensated for it, but you know, there's always going to be, because he doesn't get a credit, there's always going to be this kind of, Hey, you know, anybody that read Batman year two has got to be like, Hey, that's kind of like that mask of the phantasm movie, you know? And, you know, and then somebody will ask him at a you know con or in an interview and then he has to dredge it out because you know he's not his name's not in the credits of the movie and and yeah you know it's great that he got some kind of compensation for it and i'm assuming whenever they you know they've re-released it in theaters they released it on blu-ray he got him and i, I don't know if alan davis participated in it i'm assuming he did they got something out of it which is great but at the same time it, it is kind of uh, the underbelly of the animated series legacy that i really don't like to think about a whole lot <laughs> <laughs> there's there's obviously more to all that that we don't know but you know on the surface it seems a little a little shady on the part of of some of the people at wb animation to not just be upfront about it you know where their where the inspiration came from especially when they were pretty upfront about everything else they ever cribbed and adapted so i don't know but i i think you know like we said you've got the full circle which is alan davis comes back for the art on that the sequel uh, that came out uh, several years later. What year did that come out? Let's see. I will look. 90, was it 92 or? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. I can't see it. Yeah, 91. 1991. So, you know, um, 
in four years, a sequel comes out, Batman Full Circle, and uh, kind of wraps things up in a way. There's some there's some retconning <laughs> to make it work, uh, but you know it's like, well, I like that version of Batman Year Two better too. So, um, but uh, yeah, I think we've uh, we we did our best, guys. We tried to stay positive, and and I used to really like this one. I I kind of questioned. You know, it was quickly kind of dismissed and kind of put out of canon in a lot of ways. You know, it, it uh, was kind of pushed over into a corner and said, yeah, we don't really talk about that. You know, right. uh, I kind of thought that that was unwarranted in a lot of ways. But now having reread it, I, I, I don't really disagree with it. In a lot of, you know? Yeah, and I remember like when we, we covered the first chapter in this book, which was probably a year ago. Um, yeah. I know that some people were like, yeah, I like Batman Year 2 better than Batman Year 1. And at the time, I was like, all right, you know, to each his own. But now I'm like, what, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> and I just think, you know, obviously, when you when you spend months going over these things and and really scrutinizing them for the podcast the way that we do, you find some stories that you love or enjoy don't hold up really well under heavy scrutiny. But I think we both found to our enjoyment that Batman Year One, yeah, it holds up really well under heavy scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, and this one, no, it does not. Um, but don't have to deal with this one. We are beyond Batman Year Two. We are moving forward. And the next episode promises to be much better. Why is that, Chris? Because next issue we have the Detective Comics debut of Norm Brayfogle. Norm freaking Brayfogle. Norm freaking Brayfogle. And on the other side, we also have the final Max Allen Collins issue, um, <laughs> which will be nice just to kind of put that to bed. But it's also not a bad issue. I'll say that right now. It's not a bad. Mm. I haven't reread it yet, so I, 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 it, we're out of Jason Todd's origin, so that can only be a good thing. I, so. I, I mean, without you know bearing the lead or anything, I do think that the story that Collins wrote for the Batman Annual with the Penguin that we already talked about, I think that's the best of his eight little stories in in Batman. I think the one that we cover next, his the one that he goes out on, I think that's the second best. So, mm. oh great, well good. That's how we will leave it. Um, until next time, folks. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Yeah.